Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon, Jim. Well, it's a wonderful opportunity to again share with our listeners some uh, thoughts that we have about uh, the end times. And uh, today, this is episode uh, 37, and it's titled, It Was a Wonderful Life. Uh, <laughs> what, do you do what, do you, what do you mean by it was a wonderful life? Well, we want to do some reflections on the great film, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, the title has been slightly altered because now, uh, almost 80 years later, after that film was made in 1946, it seems like... Uh, that uh, statement, it's a wonderful life, no longer applies to our country and perhaps uh, to the rest of the world. All of us, I think, are connected with and aware of, acquainted with the great Christmas classic movie, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, starring James Stewart and Donna Reed. Uh, That film was made in 1946. And uh, what we want to discuss today is why was it titled It's a Wonderful Life? What made it wonderful? Well, first of all, I think it expresses the life and values of people in a small town of upper New York. Uh, The whole point of the show is to show the value or import for good that a single person can make by his life. The film captures uh, the somewhat idealistic uh, situation and morality of a small community, but generations of viewers have grown in their appreciation of this film. Pat and I had the occasion over this past holiday just a few weeks ago to watch it twice, as it turned out. And, you know, contrary to modern films that we uh, that are released today, uh, it is rated. Well, it is unrated. Doesn't have to be rated because there is no swearing, no profanity, no cussing, no violence, no uh, improper sex, no immorality and on and on we can go. Um uh, You know, back in uh, sometime after the film was made, uh, I discovered that this is the number one most inspiring film of all time, as the American Film Institute uh, describes it. That is quite an honor. You know, uh, and I think it still stands. Uh, No wonder then. Uh, it was called It's a Wonderful Life and that it was rated in such a spectacular way. And, and so I'd like today, uh, John, with you to discuss some of the values that we see in this film and ask ourselves the question at the end, well, are these still prevalent in America today? Uh, what, what are the values uh, that a single life uh, lived uh, properly and morally uh, brought about as we see that revealed in the film? You know, George Bailey lived and promoted the many values he received from his parents. Uh, That's very clear in the film. He had great respect for his father, giving up uh, hopes of his own separate career in order to keep the family business going. Uh, Other values that we see in the film are uh, hard work, um, a sacrifice for others, including willing to give up a whole community. Uh, and, and, and that is to work on behalf of a whole community and its success. We see fidelity in marriage. Yeah. We see family. Yes. No, I'm just I'm just confirming. Yep. Okay. Uh, we say, we see family life portrayed. There are four children, and uh, they uh, are obedient children. And near the end, they are uh, acquainted with spiritual things, and they're going to participate in a Christmas pageant. Uh, 
George Bailey refuses to be bribed and to surrender his values all for money. Yeah, uh, there's a very critical scene in which he finally gives up that thought and and insists on being faithful to the community and to uh, the place of his business in that community. Uh, it shows how uh, he helps destitute families out of their poverty. It's a great reinforcement of capitalism. Uh, he's willing to suffer financial loss and personal dreams that he has for others. Uh, he's willing to take a second place to others. There's a strong emphasis on patriotism. Uh, his brother has joined the military and uh, is awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. Uh, and that emphasizes the fact that people are volunteering to uh, help the nation through World War II. So all of those values are things that we can treasure uh, and ought to treasure yet today. You know, uh, the key point in the film is that uh, George Bailey is showing what, is, what his life would mean or not mean if he were, if he had not been born and had not lived and influenced his community. And it's a graphic uh, portrayal as he's brought back through his community, uh, Bedford uh, in New York. Uh, he sees the town given over to uh, uh, taverns and dance halls and there's civic corruption going on squalor and poverty, brokenness. There's the autocratic rule uh, by that uh, businessman who wanted to uh, own the whole town and other things as well. Oh, yeah. So uh, George Bailey's life had made a contribution to the good of the community and, the, and his non-living, non-existence meant that uh, no one else stepped forward uh, to promote and defend those values. So quite a graphic portrayal of the difference of what one man can do uh, to help his community promote the good and refuse the evil. You know, even at the turning point of the film where uh, George Bailey is back at the bridge, his uh, business partner has lost $8,000. Uh, it means uh, bankruptcy and jail time and all those other things for him. Uh, he, he's at the bridge and he's uh, th thinking of committing suicide. And he goes through the experience of having his guardian angel come and appear and uh, really save him from uh, committing suicide. And uh, that guardian angel shows what his life would have been, uh, what the life of the community would have been if he had not been born. People sometimes will say, you know, I wish I'd never been born. And so that's a <laughs> <laughs> this is a great lesson about why that's not an appropriate attitude. You know, Jim, so, if I might inject here, all of a sudden I'm I'm thinking of uh, I'm thinking of Job. Job Job got to the point where I said, you know, I wish I'd never been born. And 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 I suppose in a very loose way, uh, George Bailey in uh, It's a Wonderful Life, in some ways, kind of. Uh, mirrors uh, Job because here's George Bailey, a righteous man, continually uh, being dealt misfortune, uh, even though uh, he, he he is a man of character, and uh, and I, I just I just thought of that analogy there for a second. Well, yeah, I think that's appropriate. Uh, there's a parallel uh, 
a parallelism in, in uh, certain respects. Uh, so when George Bailey, near the end of the film, realizes how destitute a community would be without his uh, having been born and influencing uh, things for good in the communities back at the bridge, and it makes you wonder, well, did that whole uh, process of being uh, taken along by his guardian angel uh, just something in his imagination or did it really happen and so forth but re regardless of that I, I've paid attention to what he prays finally and he is uh, as I said contemplating suicide and his prayer is this help me God I want to live again I want to live again and I point out to people when I'm with a group watching that such as our family that that's his conversion he now realizes what his life really could be and should have, should be and can continue to be, that taking his life in suicide was not an option, not a correct thing. And uh, so when he finally prays, help me, God, I view that as his conversion. And God answers his prayer by showing him the true meaning of life and of what a life lived for good can really amount to. And, you know, I think even on to the very last scenes of the film, um, when their financial situation is being repaired by the help of the whole community, uh, giving generously yeah. and sacrificially, yeah. as he has been doing all his life, uh, there's a singing of Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. Uh, a couple scenes before that, the one of the children is playing uh, another Christmas carol, and uh, they were all practicing getting ready to go to a, a Christmas pageant. All those things. Uh, reflect the values and the uh, context of living right after World War II. And uh, others have called that, you know, the greatest generation. And now perhaps we've degenerated to the least generation. What That's, a contrast. Uh, what a contrast. Yes. So people who are listening to us, John, listening to me in particular, uh, may ask this question. What does the film It's a Wonderful Life have to do with the end times? Because this podcast is titled Apocalypse is Coming, and all of our uh, uh, individual episodes are dedicated to dealing with something of the end time. So what does It's a Wonderful Life have to do with the end times? Well, just this. The values that are so highly appreciated and communicated in the film of the 1940s are all under attack in this new century, at yeah. least in our culture in general. It is a sad, sad thing for uh, our country and other nations as well, perhaps particularly in the West, to see this departure from the values that are so highly appreciated in the past. You know, a current cry from the anarchists and the protesters of our day is to cancel culture. Well, those words mean that morality, respect for law and order, our Judeo-Christian ethic is under attack and all the other positive things that belong to It's a Wonderful Life are to be canceled, eradicated, rejected, and replaced by something far, far inferior and that will lead to I think, frankly, the dissolution, the destruction of our culture, our American way of life. You know, most importantly, 
the assumed place of the Christian faith in that film is today virtually despised by an increasing number of people. A conversion such as George Bailey's at the bridge is virtually absent from any Hollywood film today and probably sneered at, rejected and so forth if it is referred to. And that kind of incident is uh, being erased from the consciousness of many people in America today. Would you agree with that, John? Well, I would. There's, some, there's, there's something else, Jim, that is, it's coming up because George, George Bailey, even though he got to a point of despair, at the end, what did he do? He cried out to God. I think of this, uh, all of a sudden, of this passage that, that Jesus uh, spoke of uh, with his disciples. And uh, let me see, I, I had it here just for a second, but I seem to have wiped it out. And it's in Matthew uh, 18. Um, the, the um, let, me, let me look it up here. Uh, go ahead. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, I just yeah. lost my wits. I had it up on my screen and then, and then I hit the wrong little uh, uh, icon on my screen and it wiped it out. So I'm a victim of technology temporarily. Yeah. While you're looking for it, let me share some thoughts. It is amazing to me as I, have rehearsed the values of the film that we just uh, uh, reviewed in a sense and compared it to what is going on today. I was struck by the similarity of the values that are in this film and the, and the condemnation of such values that will take place in the end times. And yeah. it's amazing to me that uh, I want to read uh, two passages from first and second Timothy and Paul links both of these um, uh, statements and uh, and uh, uh, rehearsal of what the end times will be like to the end times. So I'm going to read first this one from 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. The Spirit clearly said that in latter times, later times, referring to the end, yeah. that some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teaching comes through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been sneered as with a hot iron. And he goes on to list other things with that. So this is the height of uh, our departure from uh, a culture that had a basic assumption of, of biblical values, and that is a departure from the faith. And uh, so that refers to uh, the contrast to what George Bailey does in the film. But then the passage that is even more uh, uh, descriptive of the present age, the end times, uh, is that from 2 Timothy chapter 3. And Paul begins it with these uh, strong words. 2 Timothy 3, 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. George Bailey was willing to give up love of himself to promote the community. Yeah. They will be lovers of money. George Bailey gave up all kinds of pathways that would compromise his morality uh, by way of money, and he refused to do that. Uh, people in the last days, Paul the Apostle says, will be boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, 
without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And Paul adds these words, have nothing to do with them. My, what a contrast uh, to those values that are exemplified in It's a Wonderful Life. You know, you know Jim, I'm thinking of something here. Uh, the town that uh, George Bailey lives in, I believe, is uh, Bedford Falls. Yeah. But, uh, but, but with, <laughs> if he had never existed, the people in that town degenerate to the point where it's taken the name of the guy that runs the town, um, who is the evil banker, and it's Potterville. And the description in Second Timothy three sounds like Potterville, not like Bedford Falls. Yeah, and it's a it's a, that that episode in the film, you know, showed that if George Bailey had not been born and resisted uh, the efforts of Mister Potter, uh, instead of having a, a blossoming community of homes that were. Uh, paid for by loans from uh, George Bailey's uh, loan company. Uh, instead, there would have been a cemetery uh, uh, where uh, people who were poverty stricken and who had never been able to afford a home and never been able to advance up the uh, uh, ladder, so to speak, of their society in that little town. Instead, death reigns in the place of that. Yeah. But uh, I, I think that I, I, I'm amazed that all the symbolism in that film. I mean, that various scenes of the black crow that appears uh, uh, in a couple scenes. And I said to my, uh, my grandkids when we were watching it the second time over Christmas, I said, notice that crow, what do you think it stands for? It's a symbol of darkness and what, the, uh, what, is, being, uh, uh, what is about to happen in the loss of uh, a great a deal of money and the threat of total bankruptcy and all of that. Yeah. And all little symbols like that scattered throughout it. Did you find the text you were looking for? I did, and and uh, and and it's uh, it's a kind kind of a curious thing, but um, it's it's what Jesus talked about when. Uh, uh, let me see here, one through eight. It's in Luke chapter eighteen, and. It's very interesting because Jesus introduced that. He says he told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not to give up. Well, what's that have to do with this movie, John? Well, listen to the rest of this. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. Sounds like uh, Mr. Potter there. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about what people think, yet because this widow continues bothering me, I like the word pestering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't wear me down by uh, continually beating on my door. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? 
will he keep putting up or putting them off? And then he says this, Jesus says this, I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Mm. And uh, that is the question that uh, that we are posed by, uh, that we are challenged to ask of ourselves uh, in light of the way the character uh, of our days appear. And, and I think it's just, it's just uh, amazing that in the end, the issue of faith is, is that which is going to change the nature of community and all kinds of things. Well, I think you hit it right on the nail, John, that it is our faith that is most important of all. When all else fails, when all else may be taken away, when all in the future looks dark and gloomy, it is our faith that can see us through that and the enablement of the Holy Spirit. You know, our listeners, John, are for, for the most part, as far as we know, Christian people. And as we face an uncertain future uh, in which we can no longer say it is a wonderful life, wonderful as defined by the events and the storyline of this film, Christians nevertheless can be victorious. We have the promise of God and the enablement of the Holy Spirit to live contrary to our world system, our current culture, and live above the fray of a dying culture to overcome it, to overcome the world. And so I'm thinking of a couple passages from 1 John uh, chapter 2, first of all, verse 15, when John says, love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. And he goes on to conclude that the world is passing away and the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God will abide forever. What a great promise that in spite of what's happening in our decaying culture around us, we can be victorious. And even more to the point, I think of chapter five, in which John says, um, verse four, uh, Everyone born of God has overcome the world. Everyone who's a Christian today is able to overcome the culture that is dying. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? The answer that John gives us is only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So our faith in the person of Jesus Christ empowers us to overcome the world. John goes on to say, uh, this one who overcame uh, did not come by water only, but by water and blood. It is the spirit who testified because the spirit is the truth. And he goes on to talk about that in further words. But anyway, he goes on to say, anyone who believes in the son of God has this testimony in his heart. Uh, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life who does not have the Son of God does not have life. You know, Christians listening to this and adhering to the voice of Scripture can be deeply encouraged, can persevere by faith, and trust God through difficult times like this. But our unsaved neighbors and friends, those who have not claimed Jesus Christ as Savior, 
have nothing to fall back on. They may despair, uh, like you and I have been doing, John, in regards to the departure of our culture from those values that were so true and, and genuine back uh, in the 1940s. Yet they have no way to persevere and to have hope. Right. Uh, there's only despair and a sense of tremendous loss and a sense of uh, what do I do next or what next is going to come upon us. But that doesn't have to be uh, the attitude of believers. Jim, I'm, so, thinking, of, I'm thinking of what Paul said, uh, that the people without Christ are without hope and without God in the world. What a terrible uh, situation to be in when the world is coming unglued. Yes, and you know, I made the connection between the past uh, of the 1940s and our current culture today, and then I linked that to the end times. And somebody out there may say, well, uh, simply because our culture is decaying doesn't mean that uh, we're approaching the end times. Well, we cannot be absolutely sure how close the end times are. But we can say this, that everything uh, that we've been talking about in this podcast offers portents or adumbrations or signals that the end is coming upon us sooner or later. Uh, and we can expect that the culture will decay and die around us until the false Christ arises to seemingly save it under satanic uh, leadership. We're talking now about the Antichrist. So... Uh, it is so crucial and important for believers to uh, rest upon the promises of God and especially the promises of deliverance from this present evil world. And I'm thinking now, John, of the rapture of the church. It is a rescue as used in scripture uh, mm -hmm. from this present evil world, lest we come under the period of God's great wrath being poured out on the world for having rejected him and having embraced the idolatry of the Antichrist. So going back to how we started this podcast, uh, I've titled it, It Was a Wonderful Life, because the present tense verb, it is a wonderful life, has uh, transpired. And we are now doing a, a retrospection instead of uh, looking forward. And uh, so we've titled this, It Was a Wonderful Life. Uh, and we, we want to reassure our listeners that uh, in spite of uh, the departure of our culture from it's a wonderful life to now it was a wonderful life, uh, what a sad thing to have to uh, acknowledge. But with revival and renewal of the church and of us believers individually and of our culture, we could see something like this life again. But it all depends on spiritual renewal and revival. Uh, but nonetheless, such a decrepit, decrepit condition that it seems that exists today uh, portends the days of the Antichrist and the Great Tribulation. Do you have any final thoughts about this, John? Well, I do. And, and, and we can say it was a wonderful life. But if, if you're a believer, regardless of what is uh, coming unglued around you uh, in terms of the world situation, and particularly as we see uh, things in, uh, in our country uh, degenerating, we can still say it is a wonderful life. One of the things about the movie that I think uh, George Bailey 
ended up understanding there at the end was that what makes life wonderful is uh, not the uh, pleasures and the conveniences that the world offers, but the opportunities to serve, the opportunities to serve that the world offers. And uh, he realized that uh, his uh, efforts in that regard were what made life wonderful for him, because those are the things that will last forever, uh, is what you do in the name of Christ uh, for others. That opportunity, in some ways, uh, is greater than ever before. So from, from the biblical, from the biblical uh, perspective, we have the opportunity as believers to have a life that is more wonderful uh, than we might otherwise have imagined. Uh, all that is going to be required is that we exercise our faith uh, with the daily opportunities that God gives us in serving others. Yes, and you know, and I'm, I'm very glad that you said that, John, because uh, for every Christian, it is a wonderful life. In spite of the outside circumstances and the trials that our culture may be going through, we as members of the body of Christ, part of a congregation that worship and follow uh, the biblical guidelines for our lives, it is a wonderful life. None of us should ever be able to say, looking back after becoming Christians, that it was something contrary to that. It is right. indeed a wonderful life, and only believers can attest to that to the degree that we've been talking about. Uh, so again, just to summarize where we've come, uh, we're saying in effect that uh, the film is a wonderful life, has uh, degenerated in our culture today. That is all the values and uh, conditions advocated in the film uh, have degenerated to where we are today. So that it looks like we are uh, uh, embracing as a culture those values that characterize the end times. But we as believers affirm through our victory in Christ, uh, who, in whom we overcome the world and live victoriously as uh, the words of uh, First uh, John indicated a little while ago that I read, um, can have a triumphant life. I can do all things through Christ. For me to live is Christ, as Paul the Apostle said, and to die is gain. And we look for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus, who will deliver us from this present evil world. Thank you, John, right. for contributing this your, your thoughts with me on this. You're welcome anytime. It's a great honor. Have a good afternoon. Bye now. You too. Bye, Jim.